Let's get a picture here of what John saw in this vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 elders seated on the thrones, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes and lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their th crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of whom was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people 
and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be glory and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray one more time before we look at this remarkable passage of Scripture. Lord, this morning I feel such a need for your help and your Spirit's empowering. I feel unequal to the task of preaching these two marvelous chapters out of your word. So please come and help me. May your Spirit and the presence of Jesus be among us now. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by helping us to see why these two chapters are in the book of Revelation. Why are chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Revelation? How should these two chapters work on our hearts and change our actual lives? So here's a quote from Nancy Guthrie, who wrote a book called Blessed on the book of Revelation. She says this, I've realized something as I've been studying Revelation We begin our study of this book thinking that our biggest challenge is going to be understanding it. And it isn't. The biggest challenge is opening ourselves up to the adjustments in our lives that this book calls for. So what difference in our actual lives should these chapters make? Well, the first answer is pretty straightforward and clear. And I think most of us would realize it intuitively. And that is this. These chapters should move us and motivate us to worship the true and living God. We've all been created to worship. And so we will all worship someone or something. Admire, adore, trust in, find our identity in something or someone. But all of our objects of worship end up failing us at one point or another. But the good news is that God is seeking people to worship him. And he alone is worthy of worship. He alone can satisfy our hungry souls. And today, God is inviting you and he's inviting me into joyful life-transforming worship of him. There's a second impact that these chapters should have on our 
lives. And it is this in one word, endurance, endurance. As Pastor Dan said last week, don't tap out. Don't give up. Keep going with the Lord. It's worth it. And Revelation, the book of Revelation as a whole, if we wanted to sum up the the, the message of the book of Revelation, it would be something like this. One big call for us as Christians to keep going, to endure, to take the next step with Christ and to not give up. Life is hard and the Christian life is a battle. We're tempted, we're tried, we're battered. We often come into church limping in a lot of ways because we're suffering, we're sinners, We're tempted on all sides to give up following Jesus, to take an easier path, to take an easier path, to take an easier path. And maybe today you're just hanging on by a thread and you need this vision from Revelation 4 and 5 to sustain you, to keep on going with Christ. May it do that today, to help you to soldier through in your relationship with Jesus. So let's, let's look at these passages. I'll be using the English Standard Version, the ESV, and there's actually a pretty simple way to break down these two chapters. It goes like this. Chapter 4 focuses on the worship of God the Father. Chapter 5 focuses on the worship of God the Son Jesus Christ. So let's look at these two chapters under that framework and start by looking at chapter four. And what we're going to do is we're going to see two things and we're going to hear one thing. So first we're zeroed in on a throne to see God on his throne. And then second, we zoom out to see the throne room and what's going on around the throne, in the throne room. And then third, we get to hear the worship of the one on the throne from those in the throne room. So first, the one seated on the throne, Revelation 4, 1 through 3. So this is, this starts, chapter 4 starts a new vision in the book of Revelation. The first vision of the Son of Man was back in chapter one. And Pastor Brandon, a few weeks ago, gave us just a wonderful glimpse of that passage, from that passage of the greatness and goodness of who Jesus is for us. Uh, The first vision then extended all the way through chapters two and three, where Jesus addresses the seven churches, calling them to conquer, to overcome, in light of their future hope in Christ. So now, in chapter four, we're starting a new vision. And the first thing that John sees as part of this next vision is a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. Look at it there in verse two. And what is repeatedly emphasized is that God is sitting, he's sitting on his throne. 
And the word sitting or seated is used no less than six times in these two short chapters. Of course, God does not physically sit down or physically stand up. God is spirit. So the reality that these words are trying to get at is that God is confidently and comfortably and calmly in absolute control of all things. God is sovereign. God is not wringing his hands over the state of things. God is not wringing his hands over what this or that president or monarch or ruler or entrepreneur or tech mogul or genius will do next. In fact, Psalm 2, if you look back at Psalm 2, Psalm 2 tells us that in response to the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord, you know what God does? He laughs. He laughs. God doesn't have his hands tied by a world of people that are rebelling against him. God is sitting on his throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. And he is ruling and reigning and accomplishing his perfect will right now. What a message for us who live in such a world of chaos and turmoil and war and disease and weirdness and backward thinking and temptation and suffering. What a message for us Christians who are increasingly viewed as strange or even as a threat to society. Don't fear, Christian. Do not fear. God is sitting on his throne. Christian, everything is going to be okay. Do not fear. God is on his throne. So what we can do this morning is we can just take a deep breath. God is ruling. He's on his throne. Now, I want you to notice something striking about Revelation chapter 4. In the first thing that John sees and describes about who God is, is his beauty. His beauty. God is described as jasper and carnelian, these precious, brilliant stones. You see, it's not just this cold, hard truth that we're intended to understand with our minds and maybe argue about with each other. No, God intends more deeply for the truth about who he is to be encountered by us as the greatest beauty and majesty and satisfaction of our souls. To say it another way, God is a treasure of infinite value. I'm going fishing for salmon in Michigan later this week, and I'm very excited. Um, we will be on a small winding river called the Pier Marquette in Baldwin, Michigan. And it's situated in a valley with trees up the hills that will be changing color and the leaves will be falling and fish will fill the river and we will be smack dab in the midst of beauty all around if we have eyes to see it. And if we're seeing rightly, these created things will fill us with wonder and we'll even comment to one another, 
Can you believe that we're here right now? Wow, this is beautiful. Have you ever really looked at a cumulus cloud? Beauty, glory. But what we discover in Revelation chapter four is the amazing reality that God is not just the creator of all beauty. He's not just the source of all beauty. God himself is the essence of beauty. He's the ultimate definition of beauty, of glory, of majesty. And so he can satisfy our souls more deeply and more lastingly than any beautiful person or thing can. So we're, we're drawn in by the beauty of who God is. We're drawn in by the, the, the excellency of who God is, but we dare not waltz in. We dare not enter his presence in a careless way. This is God. And in this vision, John recognizes the absolute majesty of God by seeing what surrounds God in the throne room. So let's zoom out from the throne to see what's going on in the throne room. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And I want to look at five realities about the throne room. Five realities about the throne room. Number one, reality number one, the people of God are represented before the throne. Verse 4, there are these 24 elders. And we ask the question, who are these 24 elders? And a lot of people have offered a lot of different interpretations trying to figure out who these 24 elders are. And, and many people think that the number 24 is a combination of 12 and 12. The first 12 representing the Old Testament tribes of Israel. The second 12 representing the New Testament apostles. And so these 24 symbolize the full number of the people of God from the Old Covenant and from the New Covenant. But I believe we can say more about them than that. What I believe is that these 24 elders are angelic beings of some kind who are around the throne of God and who represent the people of God, us, before the throne of God. See, in chapter 5, these same 24 elders are presenting our prayers before the throne of God. So they're, they're, they're these 24 elders who are royal, they're pure, they're angelic. And what they're doing is they're advocating for the full inclusion of the people of God, us, around the throne of God. That's the first thing that's going on in the throne room. Second reality in the throne room, God's throne is the source of just judgment. God's throne is the source of just judgment. You say, where are you seeing that in our passage, Joe? Well, look at verse 5. Where there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And if you were to go home and read through the entire book of Revelation, you'd see this phrase crop up again and again. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And what they represent is God's judgments on the earth. And we can't understand exactly how this plays out, but God is judging people and nations throughout history. Sometimes it's through economic downturn. Sometimes it's through war. Sometimes 
It's through famine and disease. Sometimes it's through natural disaster. But what we must realize is that these things are only a foretaste of a final judgment that is coming. Yes, there is a final day of judgment that is approaching. And church, we need to not be shy about believing that reality and proclaiming that reality. There is a future day of judgment coming. And God is the judge. And there, no one escapes the judgment. It's not like, oh, I, I have my way out of, of not experiencing the judgment. No, every single human being on planet Earth will one day stand before God, who is the judge, to give an account of their lives to him. That's reality. And you know what? We live in a dangerous world where at any moment, a car accident, a heart attack, a cancer diagnosis, or a thousand other things could happen. And, and in an instant, in an instant, you are before the God of the universe. This is real, church. God is the judge. And we are living on this edge of glory right now. All of us are. And so let us each live lives of readiness for that day by daily trusting in Jesus. Our lives are not going to be perfect. But what this means is that when we blow it, when we mess up, when we fail, when we sin, we're turning back to Jesus. And as we do that, we will live lives of readiness for this day of judgment that is coming. Third reality in the throne room, the Holy Spirit is present and active in the throne room. The Holy Spirit right now, right now, is present with God the Father and God the Son in heaven. He is often the forgotten third person of the Trinity. So we must not forget the fact that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is in heaven now with God and that he plays a critical role in the worship of God and, and of God the Father and God the Son in heaven. Fourth reality in the throne room, a separation exists between earth and what's going on here and heaven and what is going on there. Heaven is a real place where God dwells. And it is a different place than everywhere else in creation. Everywhere else in creation, and especially the earth, is cursed because of sin. This is why chaos and turmoil reign around us. But in heaven, there is perfect peace, total joy, absolute sinlessness, Complete wholeness. In heaven, there is no sin. In heaven, God is worshiped forever. And the amazing thing is that one day, heaven is going to come down to earth. And on that day, all that makes heaven heaven now will make earth heaven-like then. And that is our future home. That is where we are headed. But for now, there's a clear separation between earth and what's going on here and heaven and what is going on there. Listen to what 
um, the ESV study Bible says. It says this, the sea of glass appears in prophetic visions of God's throne room, like in Exodus and Ezekiel and Revelation. It is the floor of heaven and the ceiling of the created universe. And its transparent tranquility shows heaven's peace in contrast to earthly turmoil. That sea of glass shows that separation, that clear separation between heaven and earth. The fifth reality about the throne room is that majestic beings surround the throne. Verses 7 and 8. Look at it there in your Bibles, verses 7 and 8. Not only are the 24 elders on their thrones, around the throne, but these four living creatures also surround the throne. And they're full of eyes. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that they have a unique capacity to take in the weight of God's glory. And um, these living creatures are, are reminiscent of creatures spoken of elsewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah. One is like a lion, another like an ox, the third with a face of a man, and the last like an eagle. So these clearly point to the animal kingdom and to the noble qualities that are on display there, but they're clearly more and other than simply animals. And the point is this, powerful Supernatural beings worship God around his throne. And the amazing thing is that you and I get the privilege of taking part in the worship that's going on right now by these angelic beings around the throne of God. So we've seen the throne. We've seen the throne room. Now let's listen. Let's listen in on the worship of of heaven um, and talk about the worship of the one seated on the throne. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So these living creatures we find, they're ceaselessly praising and worshiping God. First, for this attribute of God, his holiness, his holiness. And I want to read a quote from R.C. Sproul, who did a lot of thinking about the holiness of God. And R.C. Sproul said this from some lectures from some years ago. He said this, In the English language, when we want to call attention to something that's particularly important to give it emphasis, there are different ways that we can do that in print. We can underline words or italicize them or put them in boldface type, put little quotation marks or brackets around them, or fill the page with exclamation points. But he, says, he goes on to say that the biblical writers had another way of emphasizing something, and that was through repetition, through repetition. So Sproul goes on to say, ladies and gentlemen, if, you, if you've heard R.C. Sproul speak before, you can imagine him. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that he is holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, 
holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. And what is being communicated here is the infinite holiness of God, that he is set apart and in a class all his own in terms of his moral purity, the, the, the blaze of his moral purity and his infinite worth. There is no one like our God. And, and when we encounter the true holiness of God, we just, we just pause in awe and wonder and adoration. This is our God. And he is infinitely holy. So God is worshipped as the holy, holy, holy one. He's worshipped as the almighty in verse 8. His power is endless. There's nothing that he cannot do. He's also worshipped as eternal and infinite. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He had no beginning. He has no end. He reigns forever and ever. No one is like him in this way. For although we will live forever, we all had a beginning. God had no beginning. He has no end. He lives forever and ever. He's completely independent. He's completely self-existent. He's the eternally joyful God. In fact, our existence depends on his, not the other way around, as we'll see in the next song of worship. So when the 24 elders hear these four living creatures worshiping God. They say, well, we can't be left out. We need to join in the worship. And so they join in, falling on their faces before the throne and casting their crowns before God. And the content of their worship is to extol God's worthiness, to receive glory and honor and power. So why is he worthy of this? Well, because he created all things. So everything else besides God came from God and depends upon God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things so that if for one moment God withdrew his hand, all things would cease to exist. All things were his idea, his plan, and it was his will that everything that is came into existence from the greatest galaxy to the smallest cell to you and me. He is the great source. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. So just take a step back now. This is your God, New Covenant Bible Church. This is your God. We've probably all heard about these cheesy books about five minutes in heaven or whatever it may be. And it's someone who claimed to have died and gone to heaven and then comes back to earth to tell the story. And their reports of heaven are all about their slap happily meandering around the corridors of heaven, meeting and greeting their long lost cousins and drinking tea with Jesus. You know what? In heaven, you fall on your face before God. That's what you do in heaven. You follow the example of the angels who fell flat on their faces before God in worship. That's what happens in heaven. His beauty, his holiness, his power, his justice, 
his all-surpassing worth beckon us to worship him in awe and wonder and reverence, to adore him and to live our lives for him. He is the center of the universe and calls us to center our lives around him. So that's Revelation chapter four. And as we move now into chapter five, you can imagine the camera zoom coming out even further. And the vision that starts in 5.1 broadens the vision from chapter four. It broadens it in terms of the one being worshiped, drawing our attention now, not just to the one seated on the throne, but to another person that we'll meet in just a minute. And it also broadens in that the worshipers now include not just the 24 elders and four living creatures, but also countless angels and all creation. And so this is a picture that John is painting for us of all creation praising God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's just remarkable. It's amazing. And we are being called to join our voices in the praise. But before the joyous praise, there's a problem that needs to be solved. So let's start by looking at the worthy lamb and the scroll in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So the situation is set up in the following way. The one seated on the throne is seen holding a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel then comes and asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one is found worthy. Not one person. Not one angel. Not one. A comprehensive search has been carried out and no one anywhere can be found to open the scroll. And the situation is so awful. It's so unutterably depressing and distressing that it causes John to burst into tears. Now why? Why is John so profoundly troubled that no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Well, it's because of what the scroll represents. You see, John looks around him at the world during his day and he sees something like what we see today. He sees lots of darkness. He sees lots of persecution. He sees lots of chaos. He sees lots of anti-God and anti-Jesus and anti-Christian. But he has this hope within him that one day things will change. And, and what the scroll represents is it represents God's plan to cut through this cycle, this downward spiral we see in our world of destruction and darkness and pain and suffering. It represents God entering into this world to fix it. That's what the scroll represents. And to bring back hope where hopelessness Reigns. That's what the scroll represents. Nancy Guthrie, again, she wrote this. John wept because if no one was found worthy to open the scroll, then there would be no end to the suffering of this world. Imagine it. 
There would be no confidence in good triumphing over evil. Imagine it. There would be no assurance that justice will finally be done. Imagine it. There would be no ultimate victory for God's people, no experience of promised blessings, no new heaven, no new earth, no end to sin and death, no hope. No wonder John wept. He experienced true hopelessness. But then it's like one of the elders comes up, taps John on the shoulder and says, look, 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 there's one. One has been found to be worthy. One has conquered in such a way that he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So who is this one? Who is this one who alone is worthy? Well, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And so he is a conquering Davidic king. Look at verse 5. And this conquering is what has made this lion-like king worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, how has this king conquered? How has he conquered? Has he crushed his foes in anger and wrath? Has he stomped their necks with his steel boot? Has he flexed his unchallengeable authority and power? Has he conquered by shedding the blood and taking the lives of his enemies? The remarkable reality in Revelation chapter 5 is that the way this king, Jesus, has conquered is not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own blood. Not by taking the lives of others, but by giving his own life. Not by exercising sheer dominion and authority, but by being as meek and humble and submissive as a lamb. In fact, when John turns to actually see this lion that's been described, what he actually sees is a lamb. And yes, this lamb has horns signifying his power, but Jesus is a humble lamb nonetheless. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, and in it, I highly recommend the book. It's all about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. But he wrote this, in that book. He said, we picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition. As Thomas Goodwin says, this is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose, listen to this, infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Jesus is infinitely gentle. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It is his very 
heart. This is some profound stuff about the character of Christ, but there's more. In addition to being humble and meek, he is a slain lamb. This reminds us of the Old Testament when lambs were offered as sacrifices to atone for people's sins and to bring reconciliation with God. You know what? The good news at the the very center of the Bible is very simple. The good news at the center of the Bible is this. Jesus died for your sins so that you could be made right with God. That's what the Bible's all about. Jesus died for all your sins to make you right with God. Therefore, the only way that you and I can experience eternal life with God is through Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you've never trusted in Christ, there's one way to get right with God, one way. There's one way to go to heaven when you die, one way. It's through Jesus. And so you say, my, I came in here this morning and my life is a mess. And I've blown it all over the place. If you come to Jesus and say, will you welcome me? Will you forgive all my sins? I trust in you. You know what? Jesus himself will welcome you and give you the gift of eternal life. Trust in him today. But the pain and the terror and the judgment that Jesus experienced on the cross, how he loved and suffered on that cross. But when he died on that cross, he did much more than just accomplish a few people's salvation. What Jesus did was he brought back hope for the whole world. He unlocked the plan of God for the whole world and for human history. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so Jesus has the right to go up to the one on the throne and to take that scroll and to unfold the plan of God for human history. And we'll learn more about that next week as we look at chapter six. But here, the terrible situation is resolved. And what happens then is that praise and worship break out in heaven for the lamb. So let's read about it in chapter five, verses eight through 14. All creation worships the one seated on the throne and the lamb. So there are three songs sung to Jesus, the lion and the lamb, and who is worthy. So let's look at them. Song number one, the song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders in verses eight through 10. Song number two, the song of the angels in verses 11 and 12. And song number three, the song of all creation in verses 13 and 14. And all I'm going to do now as we finish is I'm going to read these verses and make a few comments. And then we get the privilege of singing together to this God who is in heaven right now being worshipped like this. We, in just a minute, we're going to get the the privilege and the opportunity of joining our voices in this worship. Okay, so let's read chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Listen as I read. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a new song because Jesus has brought in a new redemption through his death on the cross. They sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You know what? That's us. We're going to live forever on this world recreated with Jesus forever and ever. And this is what these, these angelic beings are singing about to Jesus in heaven now. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And the point is a numberless array of angels praising the Lamb. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is our God. And he is so worthy of worship. My daughter Annie asked me the other night, Dad, what does amen mean? And I said, it means let it be so, or we add our yes to what was just said. And Annie said, well, my teacher at church said it means I agree. And I said, Yes, that's right. Right now, God is on his throne. And Jesus, who was slain, is worthy. And I say, I agree. Amen. Let's pray.